Hi, everyone. It's Carrie from All the Social Ladies, and I've got an offer just for you. Social Fresh has a conference coming up in September in Tampa, Florida. Social Fresh 2015. It is where the world's leading social marketers get inspired, and I'm so excited to be recording this podcast live from there this September. I'd love to invite you to join me. So head on over to socialfreshconference.com and use the special code ATSL for 50 additional dollars off your admission. It's an amazing conference. I was there last year, and I hope you'll join me this year and help record some All the Social Ladies podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest and record one of your social ladies tips, it would be a great time to come on down. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kirpin. Now, Carrie Kirpin. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to All the Social Ladies. I'm Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media, and today I am so excited to introduce Carla Zanoni. Carla is the Executive Emerging Media Editor at the Wall Street Journal, and she's responsible for exploring and developing state-of-the-art news delivery and storytelling, including new social media platforms and texting platforms. She also serves as Audience Development Director, overseeing both the social media team and the newsroom analytics team. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Before coming to the Wall Street Journal, Carla led national digital and social strategy at DNAinfo.com and worked as a Metro reporter for more than a decade in New York. City. I'm sure we're going to hear some good stuff about that, writing for numerous citywide publications, including the New York Times. She's a regular panel moderator and public speaker, appearing on Fox News, C-SPAN, NBC, and WNYC. Her specialties include social media, audience growth, community building, and digital publishing. So we've got a lot to learn from her today, and I want to officially welcome Carla to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's so I have been, I I think I've told you, I'm a huge fan of Likeable. So this is um, up there on my list of accomplishments and experiences to have. So thank you so much. Well, this is definitely like the Mutual Admiration Society going on right now because I'm telling you, I was so excited to have you on the show and I am thrilled that you are here. And of course, I know a little bit about you already from just doing my own little special research on Carla, but I would love for you to tell our audience the story of your career and how you got started because where you are today, I think, is where a lot of our social ladies aspire to be. Sure. Well, I wish I could tell you that I was one of those people who set out a five-year plan and made um, some really clear decisions to get here, but a lot of my experience and and path to this journey has been um, a lot of hard work, but a lot of... um, happenstance and 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 a little bit of magical luck. So um, I, I always like to tell people that because I'm not a, a real linear kind of planner. Um, and a lot of the, the magic has to do with showing up at the right time and, and being open to lots of different experiences. Um, 
one of the things just in terms of social media is that I actually wound up going to college a little bit later in life um, in my, my late 20s. And as much as, you know, that was to the chagrin of my parents, I think that it wound up opening me up to a lot of opportunities. It was, I was at Columbia University um, as an undergrad and Facebook became Facebook. Um, it, it was announced and, and um, you know, started out at Harvard and then rolled into the other Ivy League schools. And all of my friends who were considerably younger than me were saying to me, Carla, you have to get on Facebook. Um, and so I was already interested and, and um, you know, had already begun as a freelance journalist at that time and was really interested in the internet in general as a, a sourcing tool and a, a way to do journalism. And social media really just naturally became part of that. It, I understood it to be a great way not only to broadcast the kind of work I was doing, but to really tap into different communities and start finding sources who I might not have found um, in a regular way. Um, so through that, um, I actually started my own blog about Upper Manhattan. I had moved to Inwood, which is the, the tippy top of the island. Of I Manhattan. know Inwood. It's, it's actually know. very up and coming, Inwood. It I love is. Inwood. I, I love I it. and. Inwood. Yeah, and and for a long time, I had to basically explain to people what Inwood was and, right. and tell them about it. That's kind of going away, and and I like to think that some of that had to do with and and I'm sure as people are listening to it, they'll either think this is a great thing or that it's a bad thing. But um, I started a blog about Inwood and Washington Heights um, because I saw that nobody was really doing journalism yeah. there. Um, and that became really successful. DNA Info, which is a, a local New York and Chicago publication, reached out to me and said that they liked what I was doing and they'd like to see me replicate that there. And so I came to DNA, started as a reporter. I became their first social media editor um, and then worked my way up um, to, to become um, their head of audience and, and digital um, strategy. And... I just I think that that whole kind of pathway of understanding social media as something more than just a broadcast platform mm. was really pivotal in in all of this. And then obviously um, moving from DNA to um, the Wall Street Journal, where I am now, um, it's it's opened up my experiences and the way that I use social in just such a, a larger way, going from local to global um, has been challenging at times, but is really exciting and and really interesting. Um, I'm excited to come to work every single day and figure out what the next new thing is. I love it. Okay. So based off of that, I have a few different questions for you that I would love for you to kind of just elaborate on. I, I really am interested in the fact that you went to college a little bit later. Are you looking back? Are you happy with that choice beyond the fact that just Facebook um, was, you know, it, it was pretty fortuitous that Facebook opened to college only when you were there and kind of more uh, mature and established? 
How about that that decision? I know you said it was to your parents' chagrin, but do you look up, back on that as a good thing? Because I often think about college, how it's wasted on the young in a way, like you don't even realize. And so I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about that, because I bet you a lot of our listeners who are students are, are interested in that perspective. Absolutely. Um, I think that it was absolutely the right thing for me. I was not ready. Um, I did try to go to school when I was 18, and I just... I I didn't enjoy it. I my priorities weren't weren't set in that way and because of that I actually had convinced myself that I wasn't an academic person which is a bunch of nonsense. Um right. anybody who knows me <laughs> knows that I'm I'm a lifelong learner. Right. Um I love reading all sorts of new books. I mean part of my interest in going into journalism is that I get to learn about brand new things every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think that I was ready for it. And having that ability to experience the world in a different way than um, in, in a closed setting like that was right for me. Um, and I, I feel like when I did go to school, first of all, I don't think I would have gotten into an Ivy League school um, at that time in my life. I, right. I you know, I went to general studies at Columbia, which is a program for non-traditional students. It's exactly the same program as Columbia College, but um, you come in uh, if you've taken at least one year off of school. Um, and that just opened up a whole new world of possibilities. So it's a risk and it's a gamble. And certainly, I, you know, if I had a child who was asking me the same thing, I would be nervous. But being on this side of the experience, I know that it was exactly what I needed. And it was, um, it really helped me get so much more out of school when I did finally go. I love that story. And I love the co- the confidence that it took uh, to make that kind of decision, I think it's phenomenal. And I love that how it ended up working out for you in the long run. Uh, I have a question for you about being the first social media editor. So when you were a social media editor, can you define many, many people uh, who listen are on the brand side of social media, but they don't necessarily work for a publisher. And so it's a little mm-hmm. bit different to be a social media editor. Explain a little bit about how that worked and, and what you did in that role. Sure. So, um, At DNA Info, as a social media editor, I was a blend of a traditional editor, meaning I worked with reporters and listened to their pitches, helped them report a story properly, helped edit their work, and got it up on the the site. In addition to that, I was tweeting and posting things on Facebook, helping during a breaking news situation, um, how to actually source. So verifying images or reaching out to um, people who are posting on social media channels and, and doing the, the, you know, more shoe leather reporting via the internet. Um, the social media editor role has really changed quite a bit since that time. It's, we're talking, you know, about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the difference now is that you have um, a little bit, it's more of a collaborative effort where Mm -hmm. you have many more reporters and editors um, 
being much more active on social. Quite often you have shared responsibilities where editors are posting to different accounts. Um, at the journal, we have a lot of accounts beyond the at WSJ yes. Twitter handle or, or things like that. Um, so it's, I would say it has kind of three pieces. There's the broadcast piece, mm-hmm. like what we're describing, actually tweeting or putting something on Instagram or, you know, we have all sorts of different platforms we're working with, including Line in Hong Kong. We're, we're playing with WhatsApp, um, right? Uh, Snapchat, and, uh, you know, I could, the list is very long oh, these days in the past, right? In the past, yep. it was like Twitter and Facebook, and that's it. So that, yep. that's another change. Um, the sourcing part is a big piece of it as well, figuring out how to use user-generated content, um, verifying it, making sure it's up to the same standards that any of the rest of our journalism would be. And then the third part is really training, um, working with all sorts of different levels of journalists and getting them up to speed finding the the person who's maybe a little bit resistant to a platform and helping them figure out what their voice is like um, and and how they can use the tool properly. Um, and also finding those rising stars and using their great work as as evidence <laughs> that the social media thing works, especially for journalism. Um, you know, you would imagine journalists God love them. They're a skeptical group and yep. <laughs> they, they ask lots of questions and they want data and, and proof that things are working. And that has been, that's become a much larger part of the job, that, that data part, um, which is really exciting. So I feel like that's a lot of what you talk about when you're talking about it being more than just broadcast. You said that earlier is that that's, that's one of the keys to success is really understanding that it's more than broadcast is really the sourcing of stories and the, the really the, the user generated stuff really sounds fascinating in terms of a, a publisher looking for, you know, their sources and looking for a lot of their, their content outside on the internet. I think it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, I, I think of it as a way of democratizing journalism yes, even yes. more so. Um, you know, I, I talk about this quite often, but as much as we try to make sure that we're not biased in who we who we call or who we approach on the street as a journalist, um, when you start looking at social, it's it's even more of um, breaking down those boundaries and and making sure that we're talking to lots of different folks. While keeping in, in mind that not everybody on social, that's a whole other thing that we could talk about. For, <laughs> that's for hours, true. But. That's true. And in terms of the talent, right, and, and the journalists that are out there and, and all of this, do you feel that now it's essential for them to learn and understand and participate in social or can you get by still without it? And, and if so, does it, how does it impact you as a journalist when there are journalists out there that are either active or not active in social? I don't think that you can get by with um, having no interest in, in social media and, and not having that be part of your, your daily practice. Um, with that said, I don't believe that anybody, and this goes beyond just journalists, I don't think that that means you have to be on every single platform and have that um, replace the more traditional skills. So I, I think as a journalist, you know, you have to be a good reporter. You need to have good journalistic ethics. You 
need to know how to write. <laughs> All of these things mm-hmm. are incredibly important. It, this is an additional skill that I believe can really complement those other skills. Um, and and finding the right one for you is is really important. Um, in my experience working with journalists, there have been journalists who I have found really their audience is not a Twitter audience, but they you know I'm thinking of one journalist um, in particular. He had this amazing Rolodex on LinkedIn of wow. really high-level people, and and we realized sharing his story on LinkedIn yielded far greater results than tweeting it. Hmm. These were not people who were going to who were going to engage with him on Twitter. They're very private. A lot of FBI and and police. Um, you know, government type people, and they were interested in sharing his stories on LinkedIn, but not on something so so public like Twitter. That's really great advice, not only for journalists, but for brands, I think, is to really know where your consumer is, right, or your audience, mm-hmm. and then really connect with them there versus trying to be on every network all the time. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the saddest things is when you see somebody who started an account on one of those other platforms and realize that it doesn't work yep. and it just kind of goes dead. Two lonely tweets sitting there. So, so sad. So, so sad. And I would much rather somebody be more strategic and say, I, my, my gut is that this platform is going to work for me and, and go all in on that one platform and don't touch the other platforms until you've decided that those have value for you. But you don't have to spread yourself then. And you mentioned before in, in your earlier role, and I know you do this here as well, is really working with breaking news. And I'm really curious as to how breaking news and and social media has impacted, obviously it's had a tremendous impact on breaking news, but has it helped or has it hurt? Or both? Hmm. I think think there's potential for both. Um, And I've experienced both sides of of (laughs) the the equation. Um, I... I think it has huge, huge value um, when vetted properly. We at the journal are really fortunate. We work with um, a sister organization called Storyful. They do um, social media, user-generated content vetting and and processing. They're able to find a lot of content and and do work to make sure that it is. Um, you know, that the person tweeting it or the person posting it is who they they say they are and that they were where they said they were. Um, That doesn't replace our process in terms in in the newsroom of vetting that that content. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think about earlier this year with um, the situation with Charlie Hebdo in in Paris, and there was a lot of content that was out there um, that was there were a lot of questions. Is this real? What are we seeing? What is the ethical obligation to the person posting it? Um, You know, somebody had actually, this is a a highly spoken about incident. The person who had posted the video of, of the shooters that he took, he 
took that footage without understanding the greater implications of what he was seeing. And we as journalists need to be thinking, you know, a little bit further than the person who has just posted that on, on social media, making sure that we're protecting that person and, and the, the public at large as well, that we've given the context around the story and, and what you're seeing on, um, on that video or, or that post. Unfortunately, not everybody follows those guidelines. And I think in addition, something that I am constantly watching is with the advent of, of you know, social media platforms as something where people feel like they are personally broadcasting, um, just really thinking about how the general public uses user-generated content and, and the responsibility and ethics that, that they should probably be holding themselves accountable for. I think that's a great answer. I mean, it's a very complicated issue. So I think it's, it's, yeah. it, was a good, it was a good overview in terms of the potential that it can have, um, but also things that we need to think about just as we're, as we're publishing this type of stuff. I think it's, it's yeah. really, really great. So tell me a little bit about your role at the journal and tell me about what you do. And also, I'm really interested in how you measure success. What does success mm-hmm. look like for the journal on social media? Sure. So this, so my role at the journal now is really exciting. I've been here for um, about nine months now. I came at the end of 2014, um, and I am. I when I first came in, I was heading up the audience development department, and that's split into three different parts: um, audience engagement, audience development, and newsroom analytics. And now with my new role, I would just tack on to that, figuring out what new platforms are right for the journal um, and what kind of emerging media we should be active on. And and kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, figuring out uh, or, or understanding that the journal doesn't need to be on every single platform. We just need to be on the right platforms for right. us. Right. Um, so that's a huge part of it. Um, so it's, it's a really exciting role. I have a team of audience engagement editors who um, previously were called social media editors, and their role is much like um, what I've described um, before, which is basically um, broadcast, social journalism, meaning reporting, sourcing, etc. And then really creating a feedback loop where we are measuring our engagement and seeing Mm -hmm. what is working and what is not. Um, The audience development um, arm of the team is really focused on um, creating the largest reach um, for the Wall Street Journal's content, um, figuring out where there are strategic partnerships, making sure we're optimizing our um, SEO um, and and making sure that we're really creating stories that are have really something that I call digital hygiene, <laughs> making yes. sure that our headlines are really strong and the, Ooh, the visual digital hygiene. That is exactly. a term. I've never heard it. It's true. <laughs> Do you have a healthy headline like one that would travel? Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Yeah. And, and something that we do is we have like a checklist 
right, where you say, okay, is the headline strong? Is, have I put a, a strong image in it? Are, did I put enough inline links? You know, things like that are really important. Um, so that team is really looking at that and, and working with the newsroom at large to discuss that and, and make sure we're optimizing. And then you have the newsroom analytics team, and that's really, they are focused on looking at data and helping us tell the narrative of how a story has performed um, is, you know, if we followed all of the steps that, I've, that I was just describing and made sure that we engaged well, then those stories should be doing well. And if they're not, then we can dive in and see what can we tweak and what can we improve upon. Um, so obviously, you know, we're looking at, like many newsrooms, you're looking at your page views and, and things like that. Um, but I'm also looking at in, engagement. You know, how long is somebody staying on a story? And did they share that story? And did they read to the bottom? Did they leave a comment? Um, how can we really present the best of our journalism so that that person keeps coming back to our site and and really engages with our content in, in the best way possible. I love it. I think that through your telling the story of what you do at the journal and just overall your career, you can take away so many tips in terms of what to do within social. I loved, loved, love the checklist. And I, I think you, I'm serious. You need to like trademark the term. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. And now we are going, Carla, are you ready to play a little likable, lovable, and loathable? I, I can't wait. I'm afraid okay. I'm going to mess up the words. You're totally <laughs> not going to mess it up. Don't worry. Don't worry. Just pick an L word and you're good to go. So basically, okay, you know the rules. I'm going to tell you uh, something happening in social media. You're going to tell me whether you find it likable, lovable, or loathable. And also, I really need to find a neutral L word. See, you, I need like an L that's like, <laughs> like meh, but laugh. Maybe I'll, make it laugh. Maybe I'll trademark laugh. You can, okay, good, good. You can feel free to, you know, add in a laugh in there if you need it. Okay. Okay, perfect. So here we go. What do you think of, let's Okay, food porn. Taking pictures of your food at a restaurant. Likeable. <laughs> you definitely do it. You're a social person. I feel embarrassed to say it, but I like it. I, I think it's kind of like an art form. It is like an art form, <laughs> except when you're taking pictures of your mashed potatoes that are like half eaten. Then you get a little. That's right. <laughs> okay. This is good for somebody um, in the uh, media space, in the news space. Uh, the live streaming movement, Periscope, Meerkat, all of the kind of live streaming of, of news. I think, so you might need to come up with a, a fifth word, okay. which is somewhere between likable and loathable. Um, okay. Because, can I say, can I yeah. <laughs> ask a little bit of why? Yeah. Um, when done well, I think it's it's really interesting and and can be fun. From a journalism perspective, I worry about live streaming content where it disappears after a certain period of time because yes. I think as journalists, our first role is to document what's taking place, yes. not necessarily to just be entertainers. Yes. 
Definitely. So there should be a public record. So Love figuring it. out the right platform for that is important. Apple Watch, likable, lovable, loathable, or less. <laughs> Le. <laughs> I love it. Congratulations, Carla. You have the first use of le. On, oh, on that's great. Ever. It's amazing. I'm, I'm going to change my Twitter bio to reflect amazing. that. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. So le. le and, I, and, I, and I will tell you, I mean, I think that Apple Watch has a lot of potential and, and maybe down the road we'll figure out the best use. The one really great thing that I think Apple Watch has presented for um, – for publishers is this lesson of understanding that you can't just think of it as yet another app or a push alert or, or something like that. We, we need to be thinking about it completely different and, and we'll see how it evolves. I love it. I love it. And last one, the selfie stick. <laughs> Loathable. Loathable. Done. <laughs> Loathable. Out. Loathable. Out. Out. I love it. I love it. I, I was in Rome and it was nightmarish, <laughs> nightmarish, the amount of selfies. Ask someone to take a picture. It's like we eliminated all forms of communication. There should be an app. Instead of a selfie stick, you should send out a tweet with your geo-targeted location and saying, please take a picture of me. And then someone yeah. will come over and take a picture. It eliminates okay, the awkward conversation. Let's do it. It's done. Okay. It's it can be brought done. to you. By, done. Done. We're done. It can be brought to you by the journal. We'll call it a day, and that's it. We're done. I love it. I love it. Well, Carla, thank you so much for playing with me today. Where and you were thank also you. a fabulous social lady. Uh, where thank should people you. follow you? Um, so they can follow the journal at WSJ on Twitter or WSJ on Facebook. And if somebody wanted to follow me, I'm at Carla Zanoni, Z-A-N-O-N-I. I love it. Well, Carla, thank you so much. You are one fabulous social lady. Thank you, Carrie. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likable.com. This week's episode is brought to you by the Social Fresh Conference. You can visit them at socialfreshconference.com and book your ticket today. Social Fresh's conference is where the world's leading social marketers get inspired. And today I have a special offer for you to save $50. The code to enter is ATSL. That's ATSL as in all the social ladies. I'll be down there recording live and I look forward to seeing you. It's a killer conference.